fire rescue, EMS, law enforcement. These are the three components of public safety, and those who answer the call are the first responders. Welcome to another episode of Five Alarm Task Force, news and issues for today's first responders with your host, Steve Green. Five Alarm Task Force presents some of the best instructors and mentors in public safety today to educate, elucidate, and entertain. No topic is out of bounds and every opinion has value. Five Alarm Task Force is brought to you by Insight Fire Training, LLC, your best bet for fire service, thermal imaging, camera training, and by the Firehouse Tribune, where you can expand your horizons in emergency services and learn to work hard, stay safe, and live inspired. And our promotional partner is Dalmatian Productions, Chief Miller Products and Sites, Hennessy Distributing, your source for the cool towel, the Firefighter Cancer Foundation, fighting to extinguish firefighter cancer since 2004, the Firefighter Cancer Sport Network, Nesta Bars, and the 2019 Great Florida Fire School. Remember, our ultimate goal is for you to be safe and return home after every call. So insert those earphones or turn up those speakers. The Five Alarm Task Force is being dispatched right now. Hello, and welcome to this very special episode of Five Alarm Task Force, news and issues for today's first responders. This podcast is covering one topic and one topic only, and that is the dangers we face when we respond to emergencies on active roadways and the distracted drivers. As part of that discussion, we'll also discuss how to set up a blocking program that will hopefully ensure safety, but it's not a guarantee of those who work on these scenes. My guests today, for whom I am very grateful that they have carved out time from their busy and complex schedules, include Chief Billy Goldfeder, Mr. Steve Austin, Chief Victor Conley, Chief Tony Correa, and Chief Brian Soler. We ask but one thing of you, our listeners. After you have listened to the podcast, please be sure to share it with others in your agency, especially officers and chiefs. We hope that together we'd be able to help you help yourselves and protect each other on these emergency scenes. So I'll be right back with our guests right after this. Please stay tuned. Before we begin today's show, since it is being released on Memorial Day, for my dad, my uncles, for all the soldiers, men and women who have served this country to protect us and given us a life of freedom, for your service and your sacrifice, we say thank you, and you will never be forgotten. New technology for the fire service seems to appear almost every day, and that technology demands a learning curve especially if we're talking about thermal imaging cameras. That's where Insight Fire Training LLC is your best bet. With an excellent reputation across the U.S., Insight Fire Training will meet all your TIC training needs. Their curriculum is peer-reviewed and has been used internationally. Their instructors are Level 1 Thermography Certified, and they have taught in 33 states and 4 countries. Their courses run from introductory to training the trainers. Courses are available online, for the classroom, classroom hybrid, and even live fire. Insight Training LLC 
is proficient in over 40 thermal imaging cameras, so you feel confident they will know your make and model. Best of all, programs are customized to your specific needs, and their cadre of fire service veterans are vetted craftsmen of Project Kill the Flashover. They are so proficient that they have trained tick manufacturers on how to best use and sell their own product. That's Insight Fire Training, LLC. Look them up on InsightTrainingLLC.com. Your best bet for tick training. Would you like to meet up with Andy and the team from Insight Training? Well, 2019 is the year to do it. He is part of their upcoming schedule. June 5th, a free situational awareness webinar sponsored by FLIR. Watch Insight Training page on Facebook for the registration link. June 14th, an eight-hour tactical thermal imaging classroom session in North Metro, Colorado. June 19th to the 23rd, family camp in Black Mountain, North Carolina. Instructor Andy Starnes will be leading firefighter-based family devotions each day. June 27th, enhanced search methodology at the Buckhannon Fire Department in West Virginia. July 18th, Firehouse Table presents Andy Starnes in an online Zoom webinar. Check Facebook for more details. And August 10th, a 10-hour tactical thermal imaging seminar at 5450 Wyatt Earp. Watch Facebook for more details. Remember, Insight Training, your best bet for tick training. The Firehouse Tribune, where inspiration was forged by those who came before us, opening the doors for us to build a path, a path to share our mission with the rest of the emergency service world. With a small, tight-knit team of first responders dedicated to sharing experiences and knowledge, we constantly strive to provide our followers with thought-provoking content from all aspects of emergency services and life. Our contributors speak at top fire and EMS conferences in the country. They have been guests on numerous fire service podcasts, will even come and speak at your firehouse or event. Interested? Visit their website, www.thefirehousetribune.com and find them on Facebook using The Firehouse Tribune and on Twitter at FH Tribune and on Instagram, FH Tribune. We live by one motto, not just in emergency services, but in life as well. Excellence is a habit, not a goal. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Until next time, work hard, stay safe, and live inspired. Welcome to Chief Miller. Chief Miller operates the largest social media page dedicated to the men and women of the fire service from around the world. Check him out on Instagram at Chief underscore Miller. Find him on Twitter at Chief underscore Miller. And check out the website where you can find Chief Miller Apparel at ChiefMillerApparel.com. My next guest is Steve Austin. From 1977 to 1995, he held the responsibility of managing State Farm's fire and casualty claim operation in Metropolitan Wilmington, Delaware. He has extensive background in automobile and fire claim investigations in West Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware. In 1995, he assumed the governmental affairs duties for State Farm, specializing in fire, arson, and life safety issues. He joined the fire service in 1963 and for the last 43 years has been a member of the Aetna Hose Hook and Ladder Company of Newark, Delaware, one of Delaware's largest, most active volunteer fire departments. He was voted life membership in 1999. 
He served as president of the Cumberland Valley Volunteer Firemen's Association, the CVVFA, in 1994 and is a life member of that organization. He is the editor of www.cvvfa.org, the CVVFA webpage. In 2001, he was named Fire Person of the Year for his work on behalf of the association. He currently serves as the project manager of the CVVFA Protecting Emergency Responders on the Highways initiative that advocates improving the safety of police, fire, and emergency medical service personnel at and while operating on the streets and roadways and is a contributor to www.respondersafety.com that he helped establish in 2001. Steve is a life member of the Delaware State Fire Police, Newcastle County Division, and regularly responds to fire and rescue calls as a volunteer. In 2006, he received the Helen Rush Humanitarian Award for a Newcastle County Fire Police Officer who demonstrates exceptional dedication to the purposes of the Delaware State Fire Police. In 2012, he was named Newcastle County Fire Police Officer of the Year by the Delaware State Police. My next guest is Chief Brian Soller. The Chief has been an active volunteer firefighter for 29 years. He is currently the Chief of the Rock Hill Fire District in Sullivan County, New York, a 100% volunteer station. Past Chief of the Monticello Fire Department, which was a combination department, a state fire instructor, New York State Department of Homeland Security Emergency Services, and a traffic incident management and highway safety instructor. He's been a New York State EMT for 17 years, also qualified as Advanced Swift Water Rescue Technician, Nationally Certified Level 2 Fire Instructor, Nationally Certified Level 1 Fire Officer, and a Fitness Advocate. We'll be right back with our guests right after this. Welcome to this very special podcast of Fire Alarm Task Force, news and issues for today's first responders. And if I've done a podcast in the past 150 or so that I've done that actually speaks to all first responders, this will be it today. We're going to talk about our response to emergencies on active roadways and how we can establish a blocking program with certain ideas. If you follow tweets and other social media, you know that we've lost Sadly, far too many firefighters, EMTs, paramedics, uh, police officers, and even recovery operators, tow truck operators, to distract the drivers when we're on the scene. Uh, Chief Goldfeder always puts us out on the secret list. If you haven't subscribed to that, please do. That will keep you prepared. All my guests today, as I mentioned earlier in the, uh, in the beginning of the show, is Chief Billy Goldfeder, Mr. Steve Austin, Chief Victor Conley, Chief Tony Correa, and Chief Brian Sala. All of them have had a great deal, sadly, an experience with this. So we're going to begin really at the beginning with an introduction to the problem. And when did we begin to take notice of distracted drivers during our incidents? A lot of us have known that with the, the stereos and the cars and the soundproofing that it's very difficult to get even an air horn or a siren, sometimes even a cue to pass through and warn that driver. That's the first thing we start, and that started a long time ago. We've all seen that for years already. But the distracted drivers and the crashes into our scenes are much more prolific today than they were. So Steve, uh, Steve Austin, I gave the uh, intro at the beginning. Steve, I'd like to start with you uh, because you helped create this, uh, the Respond to Safety in, when you joined the CVVFA. You have many years of experience as a fire police officer and qualifications. So how did you see this happening and, and what was the final ca- uh, straw that broke that camel's back? Well, hey, thanks, Steve. And by, by the way, I just want to say uh, how much I appreciate uh, uh, you being on top of this subject. I know you've, 
you covered it in other podcasts. I had the pleasure of being with you uh, uh, on uh, one here some time ago, and um, uh, you're absolutely correct. This is a, a uh, is a serious problem for all emergency responders, and I see you you've assembled a great panel on. Uh, with a number of our friends that have worked with us along the way here in trying to address uh, what appears to be, unfortunately, an increasing problem rather than a decreasing one. Um, for those of uh, the listeners that are not familiar with the Cumberland Valley Volunteer Firemen Association, we're a 118-year-old association um, uh, that uh, got involved in, in, in this situation um, uh, on, to train people uh, about Highway and scene safety after the uh, tragic death of one of our members, uh, Joe Krobeth, who was directing traffic at the scene of a uh, fatal incident in western Maryland on Interstate 81. This happened uh, in May of, of 1998, so we're, um, we've been out here uh, on the beat, as, uh, as a, you might say, for quite some time now, uh, over uh, 20 years. What happened there was that um, as the fire department uh, was uh, extricating um, uh, victims from a, a crash in the uh, southbound lane of I-81, uh, traffic began to back up in the northbound lane, and there was a lot of gawkers and folks that weren't paying attention at the time. Now, this is you have to put this in perspective. This is well before uh, social media, and certainly if you had a, a, a phone at the time, uh, it was about the size of a brick, so distracted driving wasn't uh, 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 influenced by uh, electronic devices wasn't known then, right. but certainly people were distracted. They weren't paying attention. They struck um, Fire Police Captain Krobeth. Um, he flew into the air 40 feet and came down. Mm-hmm. He was dead. What was the most uh, tragic part of, uh, of this incident was that his son was the fire chief and saw this occur. Oh, so at the at the um, wake, um, several days later, we um, a group of us from Cumberland Valley um, said to one another, "Is this all there is?" And we decided it wasn't going to be all there is. And we set out, and I like to say we were country before country was cool. <laughs> we started talking about a highway incident, scene safety. And um, that was pretty much unknown um, uh, in the fire service particularly, and actually all public safety. There was really, uh, people knew it was dangerous to, to be out there. And, and routinely folks were being uh, struck on the roadway uh, with some uh, frequency, but there, we, we just appeared to be turning a blind eye to that and saying, hey, this is just acceptable or danger that you, you face when you're out on the, on the roadway. So we established respondersafety.com. Um, our website is the go-to place. We don't mind saying this. It's the go-to place in the country for all things having to do with highway incident scene safety. Right. On that page, there, there are 9,000 pages of content. That's 9,000. No advertising. All having to do with protecting emergency responders on the highway and managing traffic uh, efficiently and most importantly, uh, safely. Along the way, our, our, our friends uh, joined um, with us, uh, Chief Goldfeder, uh, Chief, Chief Correa, Chief Conley, others have all been big players in, in, um, in protecting folks on the roadway. And I, I, 
uh, I, I can't name all of the folks that uh, that have helped us, but if you go to respondersafety.com and you click on About Us, you'll see some of the folks that have been uh, influential in, in helping us over over the years. So we were able to develop, with the help of a FEMA Fire Prevention and Firefighter Safety Grant, over several years, a learning network, which um, uh, can be accessed through our page. It's called the Responder Safety Learning Network, where we provide in manageable bites uh, self-paced learning on all things having to do with highway incident scene safety. Currently, there are over 30 modules there. They're all tested. They're all compliant with NFPA 1091, the ProQual document for traffic incident management, NFPA 1500, the Manual for Uniform Traffic Control Devices, Chapter 6I, um, the National Goal um, uh, for uh, uh, Unified Traffic Control. So there, there, there is a lot of good material that folks can take uh, there and learn um, how to better protect themselves, the public, and their crews while they're out working on the roadway. By the way, uh, the Learning Network, as well as Respondersafety.com, is a multidisciplinary um, uh, platform. Uh, we cover uh, all those um, uh, responders that are out there on the roadway, uh, police, fire, EMS, uh, safety service patrols, towing and recovery assets. Uh, anybody that's out there helping others on the roadway, we've got uh, a place for them, a niche for them to learn and some specific uh, um, programs just for their, their disciplines. Uh, the, the idea is, of course, to get us all working together because when we're on the roadway, the last thing we want to be doing is exchanging sure. business cards while we're out there. Sure. So um, it's been a um, labor of love. We continue to expand the network. We have about, oh, we're growing at about 100, over 100 uh, new um, enrollees a week in the learning network. I think wow. we're around 52,000 uh, right now. People taking uh, taking courses with us. That's great. Um, I guess it was uh, specifically to the distracted driving situation. Uh, about five or six years ago, uh, while we were, uh, while most of our gang w was w were down in Dallas, Texas, at the FRI, the uh, Fire, the International Association of Fire Chiefs annual um, uh, convention and uh, trade show, um, we decided that we'd take advantage of everybody being down there together, and we would have a strategy session. So we did, um, and I guess what resonated was out of that meeting, and we'd been into this thing about 15 years. Our director of training, uh, Jack Sullivan, um, who many of your listeners uh, uh, know, Steve, uh, who I consider as the premier instructor uh, out there on this um, on this subject, mm -hmm. raised raised the issue that we're doing a lot to train responders, but have we done anything to train the the, the, the folks that are striking us? Right. And the answer the answer was no, we had not. And so, with that in mind, uh, we set out to launch a program um, on those people that strike us, and particularly uh, for, for those that strike us when uh, they're driving distracted. 
and we have this list of you know um, uh, drivers, which uh, are the distracted, the drunk, um, uh, any about D driver that you could, uh, any D that you could uh, assign to this. We've given them a, a title in there because they're all people that are not paying attention to driving, but paying attention to something else when they're operating a motor vehicle. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, we we looked across the the the, the media and saw that there was a, a uh, effort to um, educate the public about distracted driving, but none of those efforts uh, had had any mention of the fact that these distracted drivers um, were hitting people that were on the roadway to help them. Right. So. Um, we decided we would focus on that little segment of the um, of, of um, the problem uh, from our perspective, the one that makes the most imp- uh, import to us, and that is, could we reach some of these drivers with the ideas that those people that are out there helping you, you're um, you're endangering them, you're killing them, you're maiming them. And it's all because you're not paying attention on the roadway. You're doing all these other things except uh, driving your car safely as you approach responders working on the side of the road. So we, we launched um, a, a, a very um, aggressive program to reach these drivers. I'll tell you a few pieces of, about that. Um, I think the, the listeners will find interesting. One is we decided we would get into the visitor centers and the welcome centers in the various states. Mm-hmm. And we would, um, and we did some piloting up in the here in the in the uh, Mid Atlantic area, uh, where we would go and and go into those visitor centers, and set up a, a display and hand out literature. We would um, talk to the the people that are stopping by, either you know to stop in the visitor center to use the bathroom or just to to take a, a quick break there or get something to eat. We would talk. We would talk to the folks that wanted to talk to us. We even developed uh, some stuff for the kids when they get back in the car. And we just uh, just launched uh, a a coloring book for those kids, mm-hmm. and um, uh, that specifically uh, is is about them. You know, um, about emergency responders and what they're doing on the roadway. Kind of copied that from what we learned about the effect that the kids have on their parents about wearing seat belts. We thought maybe we could. Yeah, tag on to that to that yeah, philosophy sure. for sure. doing that. So we've been talking to the parents and so on, and and then then we we, we began to get some traction, and we've we uh, we're in a number of states now. I can't tell you how many, uh, but uh, places like um, uh, where Chief Connolly is in Texas, where we're, we're doing a lot of distribution of um, this material in conjunction with not only the the um, uh, uh, fire uh, departments, but also with with police departments. For instance, in the state of Florida, which is the number one uh, industry there, of course, is tourism. Steve, where you are, That's right. uh, we have our materials in every uh, in every rest stop and every welcome center in the Sunshine States, and um, uh, we've been uh, marketing um, uh, tourism bureaus and uh, associations that represent such type of people, and so it's it's been going uh, great for us. We um, we took we took another step in the, in the last six months that that really has proved to be interesting. We partnered with the National Safety Council, and with them um, 
we had them conduct a scientific poll of the uh, uh, of drivers' reactions, where they um, w- what drivers think when they pass emergency vehicles and what they're and they're doing and passing an incident scene. And we just published that report. We launched it during the month of April of uh, this year. Uh, that, by the way, uh, April was Distracted Driving Month. And we did that with Miami Fire and Rescue in Miami, Florida, and uh, did it in the, in the uh, uh, had a press conference in the station down there where we got a lot of national um, press coverage. Good. And um, as a result of that, uh, we were able to get the word out about um, about this issue. And I, I won't go through the entire um, uh, uh, report, but I will tell you that it was, um, was kind of scary in a way. I mean, we had 79% of the people um, in the, in the, said that they um, sometimes uh, take pictures, slow down, stop, yep. and then send uh, those pictures on on social media when they pass by something going on the roadway. Uh, you know, obviously they're not paying attention to responders out there. They're paying attention to social media. Um, a number of them recognize that there's um, it's extremely dangerous to pass emergency responders while they're driving, but uh, didn't seem to deter them from um, texting and driving and emailing and photographing and doing whatever they whatever they're doing up there except uh, uh, driving. So we're uh, we're circulating that uh, at this uh, that report. You can read that, get that report right on respondersafety.com and read it. It's a pretty interesting read, scientific poll, uh, if you will. So we're on top of the subject, but I uh, would um, unfortunately I have to tell you that since January 1 of, of 2019, we now have lost 21. Uh, responders on the roadway that include fire, police, EMTs, safety service patrols, uh, and towing and recovery. Um, that, they are LODDs. They did not come home to their families. Right. And, it, and there have been literally uh, numerous, I, I, we, and we don't have a way to count these because we don't always know that, uh, but, but uh, numerous incidents, horrible injuries, impacted um, impacted families and responders um, where folks um, will um, be carrying scars from this for the rest of their lives sure so um, our, uh, we're not deterred we're going to continue to um, press this issue uh, we're great supporters of the move over laws we think uh, that uh, slow down move over is a uh, move over slow down however it is in your state is uh, something that needs to be enforced. It needs to be uh, there needs to be um, public education, of which we're providing uh, um, uh, much of that. And we need to press on, and we need to engage as as many people as we can. For those readers that are that are or listeners that are in the fire that are in the fire service, and even those that are in other public safety agencies, we'll refer you to our PIO and public education page. Um, that's on respondersafety.com. From there, you can learn all about uh, the, our uh, distracted driving campaign. We have materials there for you to um, download. We even have a, a little uh, draft letter that you might want to send to your chief um, uh, in your own department saying why this is a good idea for you, you to be involved in that. We're taking the, the, the opportunity to engage those 
the those PIOs and public safety uh, or public educators that have um, already embraced the all risk uh, concept in their education with their inter with their their communities. Um, we know that um, uh, we all know that uh, this is well beyond uh, fire prevention. What PIOs and and pub ed folks do with the community, they educate them about the, the dangers in their particular communities, and we've been working with groups like Vision 2020 to get that material out there. So we've mm -hmm. supplied on our website uh, the information that those folks uh, need to know so they can go out and deliver that message about the dangers of distracted driving to, to the communities in which they interact every day. Well, that sounds... You've given us a, a strong history, and um, would you, I've, I've visited the site now several times, I uh, actually started taking uh, one of the course on, uh, you know, I don't respond anymore. I haven't responded in 30 years, but I still want to learn. And so I started taking the course on responder safety on active roadways. So it leads us to a great segue to Chief Conley, uh, who all too recently uh, suffered a near terrible tragedy uh, with his department. Uh, Chief, if you would uh, take it from here, please. Uh, yes, sir, Steve Green. Uh, like Steve Austin said, thank you for helping us get this message out. Um, I think it's extremely important with the statistical data that we currently keep uh, out of the 80-plus firefighters that passed last year. Uh, roughly 12% of them were hit and killed by moving vehicles, and over 1,000 injuries were reported uh, from this one aspect of our emergency response. Um, Recently, you know, I guess it was back in November, Steve, that you and I talked on the podcast yes, sir. about the, the program that uh, that I've been able to roll out here in Irving. And I've got a lot of response across the United States and Canada wanting to know about the program, how to roll it out, and how they can sell it to their elected officials and management teams. So it, it definitely reached out across the U.S. I think it's still making an impact. Recently, um, I believe it was say the third Sunday in April uh, that we had one of our blockers out on the highway that uh, from an earlier wreck a rollover and the police department was doing an investigation and they've gotten where they call for our blocker pretty regular which is good and they were actually investigating the scene and uh, it was six in the morning when it happened a uh, lady not sure where she was coming from but she went through flares and cones is where a highway divided, and we, we were blocking off one highway, so they had to divert to another. And she hit the side of that blocker uh, engine, it's the repurposed engine. She, she hit the side of it right at the pump panel um, and pushed that apparatus roughly 15 feet sideways. Mm. He was driving a Chrysler 300, I believe. And through our social media, we pushed it out because there's about six officers, six to eight officers doing an investigation right in front of that blocking apparatus that she would have plowed right through. But um, uh, she passed in the incident, and uh, we ha I think we had several officers. And to Steve Austin, which I was up there visiting with them, I appreciate them about to come up. And we are rolling out uh, a lot of the information that Steve talked about. I, I finally got it on the agenda here at Dallas County Fire Chiefs for our upcoming meeting uh, this week to start rolling that program out here. But uh, like he said, the traffic incident management program is part of the uh, basic fire 
certification here in the state of Texas. So we're trying to educate them as best we can. I think, uh, you know, the slow down, move over is a good program, but uh, it seems like every time we start trying to reach out and connect with the people in our community, the, the auto industry comes up with a, a better way for them to disconnect from what's going on on the street. So right. unfortunately, we have to come up away with a way to add another layer of protection for our first responders, that's police officers, firefighters, EMS, and record drivers. Uh, we have to come up with an, another layer of protection and also the apparatus, as we all know, is not getting any cheaper. I'm paying about 700 to 750,000 for a, a pumping apparatus here in Texas and about a million three for a ladder. And for those apparatus to be out of service six to nine months to get repaired from somebody not paying attention is unacceptable. Uh, the community invests a lot of money in it. And these apparatus that I'm repurposing have been auctioning off for about $3,500. And I still auction them off, at, but I just keep them a couple of years longer as I rotate my apparatus through. So sure. That social media clip that we sent out with Blocker 8 getting totaled, it was actually totaled from the lady hitting it. Right. Uh, hit the frame and, and pushed the drive shaft to the other side of the apparatus. Uh, we had about three and a half million hits on that social media page. And between that and your podcast, we've been able to reach a lot more uh, people related to our program that we've rolled out. We encourage our departments that we communicate with to use the resources you have available to protect your responders and also protect the investment the communities put into these apparatus. So that's just kind of a brief history of what we've been through here lately. And like I said, the details of the program were lined out back on in our November podcast. So I encourage your listeners to pull that up and listen to it again if they're interested. So I'll hand it back over to you, okay. Steve. Uh, that's a brief synopsis of what we've gone through here in the city of Irving, Texas. All right. Thank you. Uh, Chief Korea. on the Good morning. Good morning, Gaul. Um, the highways and byways of New like Jersey. To, uh, first, I'd like to start with um, uh, uh, giving recognition to everybody out there who do, does some form of EMS. Is this the start of National EMS Week? And obviously, uh, we're a group that are out on the highways and byways all the time. And also, a uh, advertisement for CVVFA. If you haven't joined, you need to join. It's one of the most influential organizations ever. And the work that Steve and the team have been doing have uh, drawn me in. And uh, now I am. I've been going to um, traffic incident management task force meetings in New Jersey for about uh, eight or nine years now. And on um, May 29th, I will start co-chairing the Bucks County Traffic Incident Management Task Force. So when Steve calls you up and asks you to come visit his house and his firehouse, uh, you know he's going to put you to work, and I'm glad that he did. Uh, I, my perspective of, of, of what's going on is it's a two-pronged approach, and Steve really covered a lot of it. We need to look at the early intervention and prevention part, which uh, – in the early early days is not what we looked at. We looked at the intervention by putting blocker trucks and um, you know that type of training. But we need to go both ways and find ways to. Uh, and, and I believe the culture change is not going to come with this generation. Unfortunately, right. um, we could do all we we can to enforce, but we can't catch every car and truck going down the highway 
And as Steve said, the distracted driving is from, from multiple phases. In fact, my first distracted driving incident was in an ambulance in an intersection. We were going red lights and siren, and we stopped. And about a quarter to half a mile away, I could see this car coming from the left-hand side toward us, toward us, toward us, toward us. And this lady, this woman, just ran, and this was way in 1995, way before social media, just ran right into the side of the ambulance. So as Steve said, distracted driving has been going on for different reasons. And I, I believe it's going to be education and engineering. I know we're looking at intelligent vehicles and other ways to contact these vehicles and stop them ahead of time. Um, on the other hand, on the intervention side, I believe we're doing a good job with education. However, I believe we need to step it up. And in fact, in New Jersey today is a, a monument day because we have a train-to-trainer, a Tim train-to-trainer mm -hmm. for all the Firefighter 1 instructors because it's going to be um, uh, the Tim training is going to be integrated into the Firefighter 1 program in New Jersey, nice. uh, probably starting in fall. That's great. That's great to hear. Um, I know that Florida just made history. It's one of the last states in the country that has finally passed a um, stop on texting view by police. They don't. It used to be you could only stop them for something else and then write a ticket if you saw them texting. Now, we just right. passed the law last week. The governor signed it. It uh, goes into effect, I believe, July 1st, that texting is a primary offense uh, while driving. Um, so, Chief Goldfeder, please. Chief? So, good morning, everybody. <laughs> yeah, I'm here. I was just headed on mute. Um, Good morning. So I got a couple perspectives. One, I, I, I'm coming to the conclusion that one of the solutions may be that we enter the highway as a caravan mm. uh, until there's better solutions. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, we've had two incidents now uh, that that made headlines and many others that haven't or we just have forgotten about. Uh, we had the Hanover County, uh, Virginia. Right. Uh, Lieutenant Brad Clark was killed when his company was first due on the highway, and he was uh, a, a tractor-trailer, distracted tractor-trailer driver, struck his apparatus and uh, killed him and uh, caused the amputation of another firefighter's leg and multiple injuries to the third firefighter. Only one firefighter walked away from that physically unhurt. And then last week in Atlanta, mm -hmm. the first due engine or the first due truck company at a uh, crash on the uh, interstate I-85, I uh, they pulled up, uh, started their blocking maneuver, again, there by themselves, and um, a uh, driver going, obviously, too fast and out of control spun out and crashed and caused the amputation of the fire sergeant's leg. Uh, so I'm just throwing it out there, uh, and I'm thinking that... And, and Obviously, I throw this out there to Steve Austin and Jack for their thoughts and determining policies because they've got the science behind all this. But I'm thinking that, you know, if you're sending, and we send a heavy response, we cover I-71 and we cover I-275 in the greater Cincinnati area, mm -hmm. stretches of both highways. And uh, we send a heavy rescue, an aerial, uh, an engine, two ambulances, and several chiefs. And we have a management system. We use uh, Tim's program, and, and we have amazing cooperation. By the way, I want to comment. 
You know how you know this is different? You know how people are waking up to this? Because you've not seen a headline in several years of any firefighters getting arrested for blocking the roadways. That used to be the, the, the cops' priority of keeping the roads open. But now, as more and more cops are experiencing this and getting educated, thanks to responder safety and others, I'm not hearing that at all. I'm hearing cops welcoming the apparatus, blocking, protecting, etc. But anyway, back to, to, to my original point. Uh, I'm thinking that your apparatus stages, uh, you meet at a certain access entrance. And I understand there's people on the highway, there's injuries. But the goal of our, our goal is to help people with a problem while not becoming part of the problem. Right. And each of these incidents I described, we're becoming part of the problem. It makes it worse. And so I'm thinking, uh, you know, especially when your response times are respectful and respectable and you get out there quick, uh, units respond to, you know, uh, exit 19 stage and then let's go. And we all head up together, four or five units, and we start the what I call the California swirl where the rig goes slowly, slowing the, the traffic down behind them. Mm-hmm. Uh, CHP designed this years ago where they sort of, to slow an entire group of traffic down, they swirl as they're driving along with the traffic, but they go all the way to the right, then they swerve all the way to the left, and then they start to slow down, and it brings the traffic to a manageable pace. Uh, and then we get there, we set up our system, and then we go to work. But when we're running up on the highway with a single apparatus, a single ambulance, a single staff car, uh, or even a police car, uh, it's like running into a house fire without doing a size up. I mean, it's just put close your eyes and just run in. Right. That's exactly what we're doing. So I think it needs to be revisited on how we're approaching. And I heard Tony talk about mechanical change, and I've heard Steve talk about uh, education to the public, which is phenomenal. But I'm I'm just tossing out there. There's got to be a better way right now, and maybe it is the, the uh, not going in blind, so to speak. Sure. And again, I understand they're telling us people are trapped and people are screaming. We've received 10 calls. I get it. But, you know, the pilot's not taken off uh, without checking the equipment to make sure it's going to function, function safely. True. And he's also checking the weather and making sure that we can fly the helicopter in this weather. Well, we need to be considering some sort of a size up, uh, and, and arriving together. So anyway, that, that's that comment. Uh, and, and Steve can certainly chime back in after that. And, uh, part two, you asked me about the warning lights. So <clears throat> oh, hold on. Can we get, I'd like to get back to that in the third segment, please. Yeah. Steve. Okay. All right. Oh, that's, okay. Yeah. Okay, good. Thanks. Well, all right. And, um, and by the way, to all of you who might be in the path of the severe weather today, we wish you all safety and, and good luck that everyone, you know, your communities will, will be safe and you won't be affected by this. Uh, so, Chief Soller, let's uh, talk about the Catskills. Uh, I drove up, I drove up on the thruway many times when I lived in upstate New York and in Jersey, and I'm going up there again this summer. What's going on in uh, on the thruway in your area? Well, I'm a little further uh, further upstate than thruway, Steve, but we have Route 17, which right. um, is a pretty highly traveled road, and we have a we have a large uh, seasonal increase. You know, from the winter months to the summer months, sure. summer months, um, which which is a, a unique challenge because uh, we're uh, primarily probably 98 percent volunteer throughout the entire you know, state 17 corridor. Um, you, you know, I got involved with this um, with highway safety and traffic incident management. Give you a little history of our program. So 
Um, New York State rolled out through OFPC, rolled out a highway safety program several years back. Um, that highway safety program um, uh, kind of morphed into a combination program, uh, combination TIMS program that the New York State DOT was putting together along with OFPC and the, and the state police. Um, nice thing about that program is it brought all the players into the table. You know, we talk about communication and cooperation, um, which is one of the big things that, in my view, for many, many, many years was, was missing. And, you know, Chief Goldfeder just brought up the, you know, not seeing fire chiefs get arrested on the side of the road anymore. And, and I agree with him 100%. I think a lot of it has to do with that coordinated training that's going on between agencies and, you know, each agency understanding, you know, what the roles and goals are of, of the agencies that they're responding with. Um, you know, the biggest, the biggest issue that I see, and, and I'm coming at it from the, from the totally volunteer perspective here, is, um, and, you know, Chief Goldfeder's uh, comment regarding the, the caravan approach you know, in the volunteer world, when you when you don't know if you're going to be rolling out one piece of apparatus, two or three, at, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon on a on a Tuesday, uh, that might be a very uh, valuable um, answer or, or, or approach. Um, you know, one of the things that I've seen change over the years is typically the traffic control was pushed off on the guys and girls that joined the department to fulfill the role as fire police. And nobody else was really being trained on um, traffic incident management other than maybe these, you know, few folks that, that decided that they wanted to do fire police or maybe were only qualified to do fire police. And, um, and the issue there is, is we know a lot of times in, in our world, they, they, they tend to be your, maybe your older folks that, that have joined or, you know, that can't fulfill that interior firefighter role or, or you know, for whatever reason they, they decide to go that route. But um, I, I've seen a, a, a really positive change, um, and I think a lot of it has to do with the TIMS program uh, that the state has rolled out. Um, sites like Responder Safety, which is a extremely valuable resource that anybody can refer to at any, you know, at any time with, you know, the couple, couple clicks of their, their mouse or their phone. And, you, you know, we're putting more educated firefighters out on the street that realize, hey, this, you know, I'm just as responsible for this blocking and this traffic control zone and, you know, making sure that I don't turn my back on traffic and I'm paying attention as, as, as the state trooper that's out there, as the local PD, as the fire police. And, um, and just that attention alone, I, I think, is an extremely um, positive change in what we're doing. Well, that, that's, that's great. Um, and I think that all of you have, uh, have brought, about, uh, brought up some very good ideas that we hope this podcast and through your endeavors, themse- individual endeavors, will begin to propagate uh, the fire service. What we probably need to do, would, if it's possible, is to really have a major uh, presentation at one of the national conferences on TIMS. I don't. I haven't been able to go yet. I'm fi- filing uh, for 
Firehouse World and the next FDIC. But uh, I don't remember seeing one of those presentations on the on the roster of what's going on. And it, it might be the time that we have the, the good leaders uh, in the fire service we bring in from police departments, we bring in from EMS, recovery and safety patrol, and do a you know 90-minute class on TIMS. You know, that's just a suggestion because of how dedicated the five of you are and continue to be, uh, and you're not just reacting to, you know, a single incident. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's very good. And you've given us a great background for, for this uh, podcast to start with. So I think this will be a great place to take a break. We'll be right back with our guests talking about Tim's and when we respond to an emergency on active roadways. And in this next uh, section, we're going to talk about also blocking ideas. And uh, Chief Conley, if you'll talk about uh, when you were looking around for a blocking vehicle initially, the first time in, in the story from November, uh, some of the things that you were considering and the ideas you had for other municipalities that it didn't always have to be a piece of fire apparatus. So we'll get to that in the, in the next segment. And we'll be right back with, uh, with our guests right after these words. Please stay tuned. The tone sound and the dispatcher announces stations 14 and 16 working residential structure. That was all you needed to hear. You jump up from your chair, head to the engine, and climb into the jump seat. As the queue screams, you take stock of your PPE, bunker pants, check, turnout coat, check, hood, check, gloves, check, escape line, check, SCBA strapped on, you're ready. Upon arrival, you jump off the apparatus, grab the loops of the red cross lay, and head for the open front door where smoke is pouring out. You make sure your buddy's behind you. You crouch low and make your way inside, your trusty SCBA mask hanging on your tool belt. What? Stop everything. What the hell are you thinking? You see it's a working room and contents fire, and the smoke is banking down almost to the floor. Who do you think you are, Superman? One breath of that crap and the smoke will damage you in some way, guaranteed. All the soot, carbon, carcinogens, and other outgassing materials will enter your body through the pores on your unprotected face. Don't be the domino, the first person down that forces everyone else to change their tasks to take care of you. Always remember, face peace on. You have comrades depending on you and a family to go home to. Face peace on. No matter where we live, or no matter the season, there is always work to be done that makes us sweat. Just how can we keep cool? Well, Hennessy Distributing has the answer. Cool towels. Cool towels are 100% cotton towel and pre-moistened with all natural ingredients. The best part? No water is needed. Just open your cool towel pack, remove the towel and give it a couple of shakes, and you're all set. Wrap it around your neck like a kerchief, Wipe your face, arms, neck, or any exposed skin, and it is approximately 20 to 30 degrees below the ambient temperature. Wait, did it warm up? No problem. Just shake it a couple of times again, and Cool Towel delivers its refreshing cool touch all over again. When the cooling mixture has expired, use your Cool Towel as you would any cloth or rag around the house. Because it is manufactured from 100% cotton, your Cool Towel is 100% recyclable. For more information or to get your cool towel today, visit www.cooltowel.com or call 1-800-918-8323. Remember, you're going to work and you're going to sweat. Make cool towel your answer to keeping cool. You're ready to call it a night. The kids are tucked in, the lights are out, and the dog's in the den. Seems all is calm. But stop. 
It's not all right. To keep you and your family safe in the event of a fire, we're advising you to close before you doze. Close your bedroom doors when you go to sleep. Why? Because closed doors dramatically decrease heat and carbon monoxide levels, which provide trapped occupants more time for help to arrive. And closed doors can slow the spread of the fire, increase oxygen levels, and decrease temperatures dramatically. You've invested in smoke and carbon monoxide alarms. You've practiced fire escape plans with your family. Now learn another important way to protect all of you. Close before you doze. Also remember, if you are able to escape, make sure the last one out closes the main door. Remember, close before you doze. This message is brought to you by the UL Firefighter Safety Research Institute, closebeforeyoudoze.org, your local fire department, and this podcaster. And welcome back to this episode of Five Alarm Task Force, news and issues for today's first responders. And we are attacking a very important issue that we're facing today across the country, volunteer departments, career departments, combination departments, it doesn't make any difference. We're talking about dealing with distracted drivers. And joining us today, once again, are Chief Billy Goldfeder, Mr. Steve Austin, Chief Victor Conley, Chief Anthony Correa, and Chief Brian Soller. And in the first segment, we talked about uh, some of their experiences, what they've seen, a couple of ideas, but just underscoring that these five gentlemen in different areas of our country are all seeing the same problem. And so I think that we can take that view and know that it expands probably exponentially across the country. And we even know our, our, our brothers and sisters in Canada, thanks to some of the tweets from uh, Chief Brad Davidson, are dealing with the same issue. And I'm sure firefighting, firefighters and safety departments all across the world in many places, especially those where there's very little control um, on the roads. So Chief Goldfinner, if you'll get started, please, and uh, we'll go from there. So you had asked uh, earlier about the, or I'd mentioned earlier about Sergeant Harden at right. Atlanta Fire Rescue. And uh, as of uh, Friday, uh, I was updated by their uh, first deputy fire chief that uh, Sergeant Horton's had a successful surgery, and they are very hopeful uh, that they will be able to save his remaining leg. Uh, of course, he lost his other leg uh, in that crash last week, and his family sends along their gratitude uh, for the nationwide fire service response and the love that's been shown toward him. So we're talking about warning lights. And, uh, you know, we, we years ago we had a single beacon on the car. And right. obviously as, prog- as we progressed, uh, we added more lights and more lights and more lights. And, and, and uh, then the advent of uh, LED warning lights, which are really, really good. Uh, but we're starting to understand that maybe too much. And we have to think about what message is the light sending. Uh, and for a while I was thinking both personally and with others that, you know, we should maybe have a national standard, uh, that allows any fire department to have some blue facing the back as blue is showing in an led color. It's a uh, very effective, but the police cars are getting clobbered as much as, as if not more, cause they're out there more sure. than we are. So I'm not sure, uh, if there's any real science behind the color anymore. We just know that color matters. And that generally amber is warning and that red and blue uh, provide a sense of urgency. So the uh, folks at Whalen Engineering have devoted a whole lot of time 
uh, energy and, and study over the last couple of years to identify exactly is, to see if there's a better way to warn the public. I don't know about you, but when I pull up on a scene many, many times, and I've been in a staff car since 1982, so it's a little different than arriving in an apparatus. But when right. I arrive, and if I'm not one of the first ones there, I really have to kind of look around to see what's going on because I can't even see half the time. Mm -hmm. uh, add the fact that you have police officers not wearing vests, uh, but yet they're directing traffic uh, with the excess lighting, with the uh, the flickering, the constant flashing and flickering. It really does send a message of confusion to the public. And again, remember, the public isn't really paying attention. And all they want to do is get past this mess while, of course, getting good video of it and then get to where they have to go. So their, their conveniences as well as their interest. So Will and spent a bunch of time, and, and they've worked with uh, Jack Sullivan from Responder Safety uh, to develop a system that's not unlike what's being developed now for police cars, and that is more of a systematic flashing and a systematic brightness and a systematic management of the emergency warning lights. The theory is that while responding to an incident, you want as much flicker and flash as you can to gain the public's attention. So that's what lights are for. It's to say, hey, pay attention, look at me. And then you see the truck going in a direction. So that's the message. You've right. got the message. Hey, pay attention. Here's the message. I'm going in this direction. Slow down, pull over, stop, whatever. But when you approach a scene, you're not really sure what the message is. And a lot of times you can't even see where they're trying to direct you around. So what they've done is they've looked at some systems that actually, when you get on the scene, you put your rig in park, you set your parking brake, and all your flashing lights now create a slower more consistent pattern indicating you to go left to go right or slow down uh and and uh, not only a, a different pattern but dimmer at night so while you still see plenty of warning you see the color you see the the emergency if you will but you don't have as much confusion and they've done some testing and i'm going to yield to steve austin in a minute uh because it really seems to make a difference furthermore we have found that if you light up the roadway with your floodlights, now I'm not talking about blinding the public, but lighting up the flood, the roadway, the public will actually drive around the white light mm -hmm. because they think there's something there and they don't want to drive into that. So it's pretty interesting. So in my mind, this is sort of my, my, my vision is we arrive at a staging point. We enter the highway together. Our warning lights start uh, even sinking amongst different vehicles uh, in a much more slow, consistent pattern, we set up barriers, we light up the roadway around the incident, the public proceeds by and heads out. So, I mean, that's just kind of my little fantasy or vision right now where I think this is going. Now, interestingly, last week, and, and those of you who know me know that nothing overrides my grandkids, and I had a grandkid <laughs> event this weekend, so I couldn't go to Harrisburg. Uh, and so Steve Austin and, and Responder Safety, working with Wheel and Engineering, uh, did a demonstration. Uh, and they did some testing this week, last week, in the dark, in the dusk, uh, to see what looks better, what appears to be better, what seems to create a less confusing, more consistent message. So I'll yield to Steve. Steve, how did it go last week? Hey, Billy, thanks. It, it went real well, and, and we... Uh, we appreciate uh, your uh, the shout out there on this, and I know that you would have been there if you didn't have family, because uh, in the fire service, family always has to come first. Absolutely. Uh, 
We uh, we had a, held a test last week in in in, in conjunction uh, with a uh, uh, with Tom Stolnaker. Tom is the uh, the chairman of the task force. Um, uh, low voltage task force, I'll get the words out here, on the NFPA 1901 um, committee. Now, I want to say very clearly that this was not an NFPA sanctioned or requested test. This was uh, uh, a test that we decided to put together uh, to, to help de- uh, further define what is already in the new draft of NFPA 1901 for the next edition. And that is the installation of this ambient lighting system on fire apparatus. Now, uh, the committee voted to make that a, a mandatory, and um, not make that optional, but to, but to make that mandatory. What we're interested in doing is supporting uh, that um, committee's action on uh, this ambient lighting uh, uh, system. Now. The, the, this, and I, I'm not going to talk about science because I don't know anything about science, but the idea behind all this is that there could be a, a, a lighting sensor, an ambient lighting sensor mounted somewhere on the exterior of the light bar that would uh, let the system know that it was uh, dark outside. And if so, um, then when the... Uh, Apparatus or other fire department vehicle, other emergency vehicle, gets to the scene, shifts into park, then a certain pattern of lighting and a certain brightness of lighting on the side of the road uh, would then come on. Now, as Billy mentioned a moment or two ago, this is not um, something that has not been tested. And here's one of the few situations in where the police community, the law enforcement community, uh, has an edge on us. Uh, the law enforcement community has very few standards, and I don't believe they have any standards on the equipment that, lighting equipment on police cruisers. So forward-thinking uh, police chiefs have um, recognized the problem that Billy uh, described a little while ago about being lost in the, on the scene and they have already embraced some of this technology, and it's out there for purchase. Wheeling was one. I think other manufacturers uh, also have um, are coming along with this or, or already have something like it on the market. But they've put that on police vehicles. And you may, uh, the listeners may have seen some of that in action along the side of the road when a cruiser pulls over and shifts into that mode automatically. Um, that the uh, passing that vehicle and seeing the people working around that vehicle um, is a lot easier than um, it is when the LED lights are at full brightness. Mm-hmm. So, what, so what we did at Harrisburg, um, uh, uh, we took a look at 60 different scenarios of brightness of lights and the ability to pass and the ability to identify whether or not that was a piece of fire apparatus parked ahead. And um, it was pretty neat because we did that on our cell phones. And all that was dumped into a spreadsheet. And we had about 50 people there and uh, all um, participating. And 45 of those uh, were accurate in terms of, I say accurate, people completed the entire 
uh, testing. And we'll be um, publishing the results of that here, here shortly and submitting that as a public comment uh, to the existing uh, draft in the public comment period of NFPA uh, 1901. Now, what I think was neat about this is that this were people's impression. We had not only responders there, the responders were, were the largest number there, but we invited people to bring their family members along and uh, participate in this. And so we had folks that were not um, um, in the fire service, uh, part of the fire service family, but not in the fire service. And so we got a pretty good cross-section of, uh, uh, of uh, folks there. Uh, and we also um, had a lot of different levels of lighting, a lot of different flash patterns. Billy talked about what you could see, how the flash patterns uh, would, would, um, would uh, resonate with, with the drivers, how the brightness and so forth. And, and hopefully um, we learned something here and um, hopefully uh, the uh, final product and the in the next edition of 1901 will reflect uh, this and we'll have, um, uh, as part of the standard, the, the ability to have this ambient um, light system uh, out there. Uh, one of the things that we, we noticed right away, and we had some, um, uh, some turnout gear down there uh, hanging up to look as if firefighters were walking along beside the, the vehicle and so on. One of the, one of the things we noticed that when you get into, along the side of these vehicles with this bright light, even if you're wearing your high visibility vest, um, these lights are so bright and they affect your eyes, it is extremely difficult to see um, uh, anyone walking around the scene, as Billy described. And um, we've been looking at this problem for, for quite a while. Something I think everybody will have noticed if they if they drive around on the on the roadways at night, there's a lot of night paving going on, mm-hmm. and night night paving is pretty interesting because the technology they're using there. You see these kind of balloons some of these uh, contractors are using that are, go above the pavers and above the dump trucks at the scene. And Billy is a, is completely correct. Once you get that scene lit with white lights, you can see what's going on there. You can see everybody moving around. You're not blinded, and you and you see um, and and you see the people uh, um, actually doing their jobs, walking around there, which should cause you to slow down and move over and go in the opposite direction. Versus a whole lot of flashing uh, and bright uh, LED lighting that blind you when you're going down the roadway. And just to insert for a minute, just uh, last week after uh, Chief Goldfeder sent out the secret list and he mentioned and he showed the video uh, link for that, that test, um, I had come home uh, the following night and on I-95 and they were working on the highway with those bright lights. Uh, and, I, and I said to him, I sent him an email and I said, you know, I can't remember the last time I heard of a construction crew on the highway being hit when they're doing night working because that those white big bright balloon lights uh light up the whole area so i'm glad to hear that that both of you uh see the value of that uh as well and that you can use a combination of the lights on our vehicles and these lights however we get them set up on our our apparatus um or maybe it's a special extra unit uh, a lighting unit that responds as part of the 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 group uh, are thinking along these lines because I, I think it's a great concept to, to bring 
and uh, the dr- drivers see that white light from a far a far distance, and it doesn't blind them whatsoever. Chief Conley, can uh, you talk about about if people are interested in starting a blocking program and how you went about looking around and some of your suggestions that you've made since your experience and since we talked in, in November, please. Absolutely, Steve. Uh, first of all, I want to chime in on some of the comments been made. The, I was recently part of a panel of fire chiefs that was being interviewed by the local media, and one of the questions that came out is, Chief, what is, what's one of the things that keeps you up at night? And uh, what I shared with them is the one thing that keeps me up at night is trying to make sure that I covered all the bases. And as you can hear from the discussions this morning, it's everything from a response to a lighting package to a blocking vehicle to keeping our people safe out on the scene. It's just there's so many dynamic parts to this equation, educating the community that it's, you know, we're all trying to find exactly what to nail down to make it get to where we want it to be. So. Sure. Back in 2015, back to your question, is we had a ladder truck that was struck by an 18-wheeler going about 70 miles an hour, never hit his brake. He spun that 30-ton ladder truck around 180 degrees, and it rolled with 360 and threw my three firefighters out. Two hit the service road, and the officer went about 50 feet down the highway. <clears throat> Luckily, we got them all back, so that's when I started looking around, and I... I you know, it has to be a better way. There has to be a better way. So through my research paper, uh, the state of Wisconsin was looking, they were actually implemented a program to where you charge the uh, vehicle at fault, and if they don't pay within, I believe it was six months, they could charge their Department of Transportation up to, I believe it was $500, best I can remember. And then uh, I, the other idea I saw out there was, of course, in Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan, where they had a dump truck with a trailer with an attenuator mounted to it to help them block out on the highways, and that seemed like a pretty good idea. But once again, you're, I, I was having to rely on resources at my fingertips, and that's where I encourage a lot of departments that have reached out to me over the last year or two, is find the resources that are at your fingertips that you have the ability to get a hold of uh, to adapt it to whatever response you make, whether it's a volunteer or a career department, however you respond to keep your people primarily and your equipment secondarily safe while you're trying to help the community that you're responding to. So we were looking at several ideas out there, Steve, and, uh, you know, people got a lot of great ideas. And i tell you what, when that social media went out and we had like three and a half million hits on it, uh, we had all sorts of ideas. I'm telling you everything from putting green lights on it to putting a shipping container on hydraulic wheelbase where you can lower that and block the whole scene, you know. So, wow. um, yeah, I mean, everybody's got some great ideas. The, the question is, is how do you effectively and efficiently get the equipment and apparatus out there to help the people that you're going out there to help and, and keep yourself safe as well. So, we looked at it as a, as a holistic problem, and like uh, Steve Austin mentioned, we're going out and we're trying to educate the community, uh, but at the same time, we're looking at policy and procedures to keep our people safe. And personally, what our department looked at is everything from the blocking apparatus when we arrive on scene, how we set it, how we vacate it, and those individuals getting to the truck that's in the shadow, 
all the way up to the record driver and giving them 20 minutes to respond and get the vehicles off the highway, reposition them to a parking lot on the service road, and then start hauling the vehicles off. So we tried to address everything that was putting our people at risk out there. I even reached out to the Texas Department of Transportation, our national tollway authorities, trying to get them to send vehicles out. They just could not get them out there in a timely fashion to protect our people. So. Uh, the resource I had available, of course, were these uh, apparatus that had extended past the NFPA's recommended lifespan where they needed some updates on safety aspects and I basically uh, put them into the blocker program. And so it's, it's worked out well here. It's been successful here. I know a lot of local departments are putting in place, everybody from the city of Dallas to some of the uh, suburbs around Dallas are putting it in place, and uh, I think it's going to work well around here. We have about 30 miles of various highways. Two of the top 10 most congested in the state are right here in the city of Irving. We've had an enormous amount of road construction go on, and you know, road construction, you kind of hit that. We Our responses went up quite a bit with a lot of road construction going on here in Irving. But uh, they've got so many cones and signs, and they send out now, they send out a lot of information to let the drivers know that traffic patterns are changing. Uh, you know, the roadways are still dangerous, but at the same time, uh, you're right, they don't seem to get hit as much, seems like, as our first responders on the highway, even though one is too many. But right. uh, that's some of our ideas that, that we went through when we were trying to cultivate a solution to the problem. and. Uh, as you very well know, what we decided on were our fire apparatus. We put about $3,500 into them to make them, you know, we graphic them up for traffic incident management to uh, just basic error boards that are behind the LED lighting is a stop sign red tape that's put on the stainless steel board, and we transfer that from one apparatus to another. So our whole idea was to keep it cost effective, make it efficient uh, and effective out on the roadways, make it available for our police officers as well as our firefighters, and uh, I think it's worked out well for our city. So I hope that answers your question, Steve. It, it does, and I want to bring in a couple of points before we go to Chief Soller, is that I've been trying to reinforce the concept that this problem is not just on our interstates. I don't want people to think that this is what we're talking about. The same danger exists on country, country roads. They, everyone, no matter what uh, roads they have in their districts, from that little rural road, two-lane road, all the way up to an eight-lane uh, superhighway, uh, they have to be aware of these same uh, issues and in, invest some time uh, into TIMS. And on top of that, it, it, they don't have to be a, a big, rich, huge budgeted uh, department. Because they, if they don't have an extra apparatus, they can contact maybe the DPW in their community and see if they have an old truck that they're ready to auction off or scrap out. And maybe that will work until something better comes along. But there are lots of opportunities that departments have if they think in a forward-looking forward manner like the, the five of you have been uh, discussing about. So since I talked about some rural road, I'm sorry? You bring up a great point that I haven't been able to bring out yet, and uh, here in the state of Texas, through the Texas Forestry Service, career departments have an opportunity to donate equipment and apparatus to volunteer departments, and the Texas Forestry Service basically breaks the chain of liability back to the city. 
so that's what we're able to do. We've recently donated some apparatus to volunteer departments, and I've been supporting my boss to continue that program. So when an apparatus, whether it goes to auction or it goes to the forestry service where it can be donated to a volunteer department or avenues where we uh, basically retire apparatus from our department. So uh, that is a great program through the state of Texas, and it breaks the liability chain. That's a great, that's a great idea. Uh, Chief Soller, uh, what's going on there for in uh, New York? So, Steve, where I think a lot of departments are missing the boat is, you know, we can, uh, we can write the most effective uh, traffic incident management, highway safety, blocking, whatever we want to call it, SO, SOP or SOG. But if we don't train on that program, it's, it's like any, any other thing that we're, we, we may or may not do. You know, and one of the struggles that I know some departments have, it, look, let's face it, going out and setting up a traffic control zone isn't as fun or sexy as forcing doors, cutting cars apart, um, you know, stretching hose lines or doing truck work. But it, it's, you know, it's a reality of our job that we have to train on and be proficient at. And, um, you know, I, I see departments that will spend the time to put together a program but yet they'll never go out in the street and actually practice the program and see what works well and what doesn't work well. And again, going back to that training, getting everybody from their, you know, from their chief officer down to their probationary firefighter uh, to understand what their role is and how to make this thing work effectively. You know, one one thing that I'm I'm fairly, you know, I'm pretty proud of with my department is that when we go out on the highway. I know that if, you know, if, if they're told over the radio that we're going to do a lane closure or, you know, we're going to shut the highway down or they're given an order to do something, that it's going to get done and it's going to get done effectively. And the reason it's going to get done effectively is because we practice it, you know. Mm-hmm. If, we didn't, if we didn't practice it, it, it would be done all haphazardly and probably not be safe and, and, uh, and probably not happen the way we wanted it to happen. Sure. You know, uh, the, construct- the construction zone was mentioned a couple times here. Everybody knows what it's like to drive through a construction zone. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't drive. I, I was out in Harrisburg last week. I mean, Pennsylvania right now is riddled with construction zones between New York and PA. Um, people know what to expect. So when they come into a nighttime construction zone that's well lit, um, with advanced warning and effective taper and a transition back into their normal traffic pattern, that's what they, you know, that's what they expect to see and that's what they get used to. So right. when we do this out on the roadway on these intermediate and, and, and major uh, uh, incidents, if we're, you know, if our goal is to set our traffic control zone up in a similar fashion and we train with our EMS providers, our tow providers, and our police agencies on how we're going to get that done. Um, when it's done, it, it's it's fairly normal for the motorist sure. because that's what they're used to. It's just a different type of vehicle that's out there. And the light, the lighting at night is absolutely huge. And di- you know, dimming the forward-facing lighting and and getting the scene well lit up. Um, um, you know, so that people can see what what they're going into. You know, and, and the other thing that, that I think maybe we missed on missed today was 
the times that we really don't need to be out there. You know, the, the minor incidents, the overheat, uh, the, the fender benders where the PD's trying to send us home, you know, where we've still got to pull up and investigate and talk about the ball game that was on last night, you know. We just got to get off the road. Uh, if we don't need to be there, let's not be there. Great point. Very good point. And Chief, Chief Korea in New Jersey. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, two, two points to, to make. And uh, before I say that, my good buddy and our buddy, we all know Tiger Schmittendorf says the job we do most often is most dangerous. And I think if we keep that in the mantra, we'll, we'll put more priority on this. Uh, point for, my first point is to segue right off of Chief Solar as well as with uh, Chief Goldfeder earlier is about training and, and doing it in real time. But also Chief Goldfeder said that a pilot doesn't take off without doing all the checks and his crew also does checks and they interact. And I believe that's called crew resource management. And my belief is that crew resource management should be built into this training and that, that gives us a, a process that actually everybody can use of how to interact. Uh, and there, there's five tenets of, of crew resource management that, you know, make it real easy to uh, understand doing this. It's already being integrated into EMS as part of uh, EMT and paramedic training. We have have it in the fire service. That would be a, a point of how to have situational awareness, communication, delegate tasks, teamwork, and leadership. Uh, I actually put together a small 30-minute program on uh, crew resource management for traffic incident management. I've presented a couple of times. So I, I agree with Chief Solar and uh, Chief Goldfeder. One, we uh, need to, to utilize a proper process, and two, we actually got to get out there and train on it in, in a practice manner. I believe in the New Jersey Firefighter One program, that, that's going to happen in different segments uh, as we talked about it. Um, my second point is, how do you help help uh, coordinate and integrate everybody on the scene that's there to help part of that crew resource management, how to manage the incident overall, and it's traffic incident management task forces. Uh, the Delaware Valley Regional Planning Commission, uh, with a lot of help from uh, Steve Austin and Responder Safety years ago, started these traffic incident management task forces. Uh, around the Philadelphia area, starting in Gloucester, Camden years ago, their SAFER committee, which is over 10 years now. And as I said, we're in Bucks, so we're in six different counties. And we meet quarterly with um, the guys from uh, the Turnpike, from PennDOT, uh, Fire, Police, EMS, Towing Associations, anybody that's related to working on roadways and highways, at least uh uh, once every other month, sometimes once a quarter, depending on it. And so we're all coordinating and talking and understanding uh, the same language and understanding each other's job. And, and it, you know, you've read the article that I put up there today about all about relationships. I, I think several people said the first time you have this discussion shouldn't be on the highway. Right. We should know faces and people and understand their tasks and jobs way before we get to the highway. So, um, my two points are, one, we should have a more uh, structured way of doing managing people on the road through a crew resource management process. And two, um, if you don't have one in the area, you create a traffic incident management task force where you bring all the stakeholders together on a regular basis. And um, not only are we talking locally, but 
in the ones I go to, I give something up on what's going on with responder safety all the time. And Steve will actually come up, um, you know, when he has availability to uh, spar what's going on. Well, all, everything is great. And I think the magic words were said from our, our good friend, uh, Chief uh, Rich Gassaway. Situational awareness matters. And that needs to be part of whatever training program or TIMS that we develop is that that has to be an integral part that every person who's going to be working that scene knows about their situational awareness. And they take stock of it and uh, they keep it in mind throughout their time out on that scene. And um, I, I Steve, think, I, yes, I, I just want to say, I, I think and I agree with you. And the, the, the little bit of a problem is uh, there are a significant amount of uh, responders that are taking only an online course or a classroom class right. that they're not getting out and doing it, as Chief Solar said, and feeling that that's adequate. And what happens when they get on the highway, they're not having that interaction they feel just because they put the blocker trucks out, they're safe. Right. And as we know about some of these incidents, the cars actually, or the trucks have actually went around the blocking apparatus. Mm-hmm. And so if we're, it's not a whole team, uh, you know, integrating. Um, I think we'll have more of those incidents. Without without a doubt. Gentlemen, uh, any last words to sum us up? Yes, go ahead. See, this is Steve Austin. I, let me comment here just a uh, there's kind of a public policy uh, uh, issue that's, that's been creeping in here, and I think it needs to be said to the listeners to kind of ponder on. Um, and and um, Chief Connolly um, uh, made a comment here early in the program about the, the, the number one concern that fire chiefs have and leaders have on, in the fire service, and that is um, protecting our responders and protecting others on the scene, and that is absolutely correct. And in that, um, we have seen, um, and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here, but I, I think people may, um, make, may be able to relate to this. We have seen a movement away from DOT assets to control traffic and law enforcement assets to control traffic toward the fire service. All these things we've talked about today um, we're doing now because we re- realize if we don't do them, tragedy is going to strike not only our people, but the public and the other responders that are on the roadway helping others. Yeah. But we're doing things in the fire service now that were unheard of years ago. And, it, and again, I'll make an editorial comment here. It's time for particularly DOT assets to step up and help us um, uh, control that scene, uh, set up the traffic incident management areas. Uh, we need to do this together as a team. But lately, um, over the past few years, we've seen less and less support and more and more um, uh, uh, involvement by the fire service, and for good reasons. Uh, just because other people aren't doing it doesn't give us the... the uh, a pass on not protecting our people. Correct. Correct. That's a great point. But, again, that leaves the question. Steve, I, Go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, if I may. So that, that brings up a great point. I, here in New York, um, the DOT has, has placed um, regional response resources throughout the uh, respective uh, DOT districts. Um, I know we have one that's fairly close to us where they have uh, – some pretty substantial, um, 
you know, a trailer stocked with um, uh, traffic incident management. It's like a specialized response unit um, that we have available to us. Typically, it's only used on your, your major incidents that are, you know, at least going to be a couple hours out on the roadway uh, because uh, by the time they get those resources out to you, um, it, it doesn't make it feasible for those, those smaller incidents. But those are some things that, that have happened here in the last couple of years that are, that are definitely a valuable resource to us when we can use them. Absolutely. Steve. Uh, yes. Steve, it's Tony. I wanted to segue on both of those because with these traffic incident management task forces, that's exactly what gets stressed. And I can tell you for sure we have those discussions almost every meeting, uh, especially because we do an after-action review at every one of them. And uh, at least in our area, both on the New Jersey side and the Pennsylvania side, the Department of Transportation and other allied resources are much more responsive. Are we still putting fire and EMS resources out there longer than we used to? Absolutely. But, um, you know, we know because of the relationships and developing guidelines, uh, how easy it is to call and when to call and who's going to come and what happens if you don't get somebody on time. So it's all about building those relationships ahead of time so we can start working on uh, keeping DOT and other resources um, to provide their, their part of the, um, they're part of the plan to be part of uh, the resources that are needed. Absolutely. Absolutely, that's needed. And the more that we can get them involved and being an active part of the program, uh, the better off we're all going to be for everyone who has to respond to one of these incidents. Chief Goldfeder, any closing comments from you, sir? No, I think probably if, the, if there's one thing, it's make sure there's coordination um, and and. You know, uh, I know one of the chiefs mentioned about volunteers. This is a big deal as well. One of the biggest problems we're facing nationwide is the lack of volunteer response. Right. Uh, and it's not at all unusual to hear tone after tone after tone in many, many jurisdictions. Uh, and so consider what you're sending out on the highway and maybe automatic mutual aid, things like that. But the idea is we we got to size up the situation. And if you know your department continually has problem getting a crew out during the day, that now is the the way to solve it, not just for firefighting, obviously, but for how you're going to manage the uh, the roadways and the highways incidents. So, yeah, no, just just good stuff, and thanks for the opportunity. Well, it's it's my pleasure. Uh, I'm hoping to all our listeners follow your advice with three words. Whatever you've heard today from my guests, pass it on, share it, share it with the other firefighters in your department, share it with your officers, share it with your chiefs. Let them hear the. The audio of the podcast will be available next Monday. I'm actually now going to try to edit the video and put it up on YouTube uh, for us. And I think that if we can get our listeners to take an active part in what we've been talking about and realizing that when they respond, no matter how their car goes, whether they go to the scene or they go to the department and respond in apparatus, that they have to be a part of the safety aspect of the scene. Uh, not just rushing into, as somebody said earlier, you have to you know get the jaws out and start working on them and things like that. We know that's going to happen, but if we don't set up a safety, a safety zone for ourselves and the other first responders, then we're just opening ourselves up to a possible tragedy, and that's what this podcast is all about—to help avoid those kind of tragedies. So, gentlemen, I cannot thank you enough for your time and your participation today, your wisdom that you've shared. Uh, you're all great names in uh, 
public safety and in the fire service. I only wish that I could have served under every one of you, uh, as I've learned about you and you've been guests here. So my sincere thanks to all of you for your time, uh, your wisdom, and feel free to come on board again anytime. You're always welcome to be a guest here on the show. And I cannot, again, I cannot express my sincere appreciation to all of you. So thanks very much. Uh, stay safe and stay well. And let's make sure everyone uh, goes home. Folks, we'll be right back right after these words. Please stay tuned. You are listening to Five Alarm Task Force, news and issues for today's first responders. Dear John, I was hoping it wouldn't come to this, but you've left me no choice. I'm leaving. Uncontrolled high blood pressure is really serious, and lately you seem to really not care. I've been there for you since day one, and I know you think I'm going to keep ticking. But no, my friend, I can quit whenever I want. Why can't we get back to the good times, when we were more active and ate more healthy foods, and you checked on me every once in a while? Is that too much to ask? I don't want to leave, but unless you stop ignoring me, what else am I supposed to do? Remember, when I quit, you quit. Sincerely, your heart. Listen to your heart. Don't let it quit on you. Doing the minimum to control your high blood pressure isn't doing enough. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get your blood pressure to a healthy range before it's too late. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. Check. Change. Control. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. Okay, so five tacos of cheese and a large soda, that's $10,012. Please drive around. Wait, 10000 what? It's obvious you're buzzed and driving. I've only had a few. I'm fine. Yeah, the food's 12 bucks, but getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Please drive around. Actually, just park and come in. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Well, that's it. That's our panel discussion today on this very important topic. I hope that my guests have brought to you information that will help you and your department stay safe. That's what this is all about. There are things that we can control and there are things that we can't control, and we know that. And that's part of the danger we face on every response. When those tones drop, we rush out to help somebody because of something. We try to do it to our best ability, excellence of our job and performance and our experience. But again, there are the unknowns that fall into it. But my guests today have brought you some excellent concepts, ideas, Sadly, some history that brought this about to have this panel discussion. And it is my sincere hope that this discussion will become a jumping off point for other departments around the country to reach out to my guests, Chief Goldfeder and Steve Austin at respondtosafety.com, Chief Conley in Irving, Texas, Chief Curry in New Jersey, New Jersey, Chief Soller in New York. And I can guarantee you that every single one of them, every one of them, would be willing to help you and share ideas and give you some guidance. Remember, this is not just for the big city departments. 
Small rural departments respond to emergencies as well on roadways. And no, not everybody can afford this, that, or another. But we can make do because that's what we've done from our very beginning of the fire service. We made do with bucket brigades where everybody in the town, and then suddenly there was the first organized volunteer fire department in Philadelphia, thanks to Ben Franklin. And by the way, I'll put it in the plug for the museum. If you haven't been to the Firemen's Museum in Philadelphia, please put it on your bucket list. If you're a firefighter, you need to be there. You need to see it. But through our history, our history has been about change and evolution because that's what's needed to be done. Because as society changes, we have to meet the needs of the emergencies that come through those changes. So we change as well. Driving today is a whole nother experience. I do remember back way back when, when I started to drive, I remember my dad teaching me how to drive and how important it was to him that I could park between the yellow lines at an empty parking lot on a Sunday at a shopping center because in those days in Massachusetts, we had the blue laws. And if I crossed the line, he'd give me a little whack on the arm. Do it again. I did it again and again until I got it right. And that's the way we need to be with this issue. Because you don't have to do it by yourself. As Chief Goldfeder mentioned, maybe we have to think about automatic mutual aid for certain incidents. We do it for fires. We do it for major emergencies. Well, if we have a major accident, maybe we need some mutual aid to come in and help us. But to make it work, to make the mutual aid gel, it'll be a matter of practicing. Let's not stand on territories. This is my zone. This is your zone. Let's stand on serving the public together, making the scene safe for them, and for goodness sakes, making the scenes safe for us. If you have any questions or any comments about the show, please don't hesitate to send them to me, dalmatprod at outlook.com. I'll be happy to share them with our guests if you don't have their email connections. But please, take this to heart. Make it work. We don't need to hear any more reports from Chief Goldfeder's secret list of other firefighters, EMS personnel, police officers, safety ranges, and recovery operators being injured or killed on the scenes of emergencies. Stay safe and stay well. Let's make sure everyone goes home. And that's my view. Did you know that 90% of American communities are served by volunteer fire departments and that many of those departments are actively looking for more volunteers? When you hear those sirens, do you say to yourself, wish I could do that? If you have the drive to serve, you can be a volunteer too. Volunteer and combo departments are always looking for new recruits. You'll be trained in the latest firefighting and rescue techniques and protecting your community at the same time. You'll be joining the ranks of over 1 million men and women who serve their cities and towns protecting lives and property. 
Did you know that the founder of the first volunteer fire department was Benjamin Franklin? If old Ben can do it, so can you. Drop by your local fire department and introduce yourself. You just might know some of the folks already there. Before you know it, those volunteers will be like family. Anyone can be a volunteer, sure. It takes time and effort, but in your heart, you'll realize that it's all worth it. Want more information? Contact your local fire department or visit makemeafirefighter.org. And that wraps this special episode of Five Alarm Task Force, news and issues for today's first responders. We'd like to thank our guests, Chief Billy Goldfeder, Mr. Steve Austin, Chief Victor Conley, Chief Anthony Correa, and Chief Brian Sola for joining us to discuss responding to emergencies on active roadways. Did you know you can now find us and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and most podcast platforms? Just search for Five Alarm Task Force. We also want to thank our sponsors, Insight Training, LLC, and the Firehouse Tribune, and our promotional partners, Dalmatian Productions, Chief Miller Products and Sites, Hennessy Distributing, your source for the cool towel, the Firefighter Cancer Foundation, the Firefighter Cancer Support Network, Nestor Bars, and the 2019 Great Florida Fire School. If you would like to be a guest with us or have a suggestion for a show, please drop us a line to dalmatprod.outlook.com. You can follow us on Twitter at DalmatProd or at cause underscore origin. And on Facebook at forward slash DalmatProd or DalmatProdFire. And stay up to date with all the news about our podcast, Dalmatian Productions, and our blog on our website, www.dalmatianproductions.tv. I'm Steve Green. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, and let's make sure everyone goes home.